Playful music you just heard was from the second movement, the beginning of the second movement of the quintet for clarinet and string quartet of contemporary American composer James Lee III. It's one of four works on a new album on CD Records titled American Stories, featuring clarinetist Anthony McGill and the Pacifica Quartet. And those of you who have listened before to these podcasts know that every time we have a new release on CD, we have a new Classical Chicago podcast. This is our release for November 2022, specifically November 11 is the quote-unquote street date for the album. And I'm delighted that my guest on this podcast is the clarinetist you just heard in that excerpt, Anthony McGill. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Jim. Great to talk to you. So I feel I should begin with highlights about both you and the quartet, and I'll start with the quartet and then come back to you. The Pacifica Quartet was founded in 1994. They are a multi-Grammy winning ensemble, most recently for their Contemporary Voices album on CD from 2020. They are winners of the Naumburg Chamber Music Award, the Cleveland Quartet Award, and Avery Fisher Career Grant. They're particularly known for their interpretation of full string quartet cycles, and in fact, they've recorded the cycles of Mendelssohn and Shostakovich for Sadie Records, and also the Elliott Carter Quartet cycle for Noxos, and their first volume of that series actually won them their other Grammy. They're also known for their collaborations, including with Anthony McGill. In fact, Anthony made his commercially released recording debut with the Pacifica Quartet in the quintets of Mozart and Brahms. They've also recorded for CD with pianist Menachem Pressler, guitarist Sharon Isbin, and most recently on that Grammy-winning Contemporary Voices album with saxophonist Otis Murphy. This is the Pacifica's 13th separate album for CD. Plus, we also released their Shostakovich, originally in four volumes, as a full box set, and that actually even includes some quartets by Shostakovich Contemporaries, under the heading The Soviet Experience is the title of that set. They are the full-time quartet in residence and faculty members at Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music. Before that, they were on the faculty at University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana for 10 years, and they were the resident performing artist for the University of Chicago for 17 years. They also currently lead the Center for Advanced Quartet Studies at the Aspen Music Festival and School, and the members of the Pacifica Quartet are Simin Ganatra and Austin Hartman Violins, Mark Holloway Viola, and Brandon Vamos Cello. Anthony McGill is Principal Clarinet of the New York Philharmonic, the first African-American principal player in that organization's 180-year history. He is a recipient of the 2020 Avery Fisher Prize, a prize that has gone to such luminaries in the past as Yo-Yo Ma, Emmanuel Axe, Andre Watts, and the Emerson String Quartet, just to name a few. Anthony appears regularly as a soloist with top orchestras uh, and as a chamber musician with many collaborators, including all of the top string quartets, including Pacifica, of course. He's a dedicated champion of new music. And this is Anthony's fifth album, for CD, American Stories. Uh, I mentioned already he made his debut with the Pacifica Quartet on that Mozart Brahms album in 2014 for CD. And I am very proud and gratified to say that Anthony is a member of CD Records' Board of Directors. Anthony is on the faculty of the Juilliard School and Curtis Institute of Music. He is artistic director of Juilliard's Music Advancement Program. 
You're probably best known popularly for two things. One, performing at the first inaugural of Barack Obama in 2009 alongside Itzhak Perlman, Yo-Yo Ma, and Gabriela Montero in a piece written specially for the occasion by John Williams. And then more recently, in 2020, your Take Two Knees or hashtag Take Two Knees campaign protesting the death of George Floyd and historic racial injustice, which went viral. That might be a good place to start because that campaign was interactive, right? You invited others to join you in that campaign. So I'd love to hear how that all came out and what the aftermath has been. Yes. Uh, 2020, when the pandemic started, I was isolated at home here in New York with my family, feeling fearful and scared of everything to come. Then that just wasn't with the health crisis that was going on, but also with all of the racial issues that were coming to the forefront in our country that have been in the forefront in our country, but especially were on display in that moment later in the first few months of the COVID crisis. So I decided to say something about that. I watched the video of George Floyd being murdered. I couldn't sleep one night and I woke up writing just some words to myself, just on my phone, taking some notes because I couldn't sleep after seeing this video. And it was basically about how it had seemed as though Black lives did not matter for so long in our country. And this was just another example of that. And I wanted to say something as a musician, but also as just a human being. And I thought it would be a great idea to try to bring others into this idea of connection and peaceful protest against violence like this. So I did the video, Take Two Knees, and asked all of the community to join me in it and to speak up using their art form, using their music, using their words, their movement to say something against this racial violence and injustice. So Take Two Knees started, and soon thereafter, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people did videos and shared the video of my Take Two Knees and did their own performances, bringing to light how terrible this is and that we're all human and we all deserve to live in peace together. It was at the time a healing act for me to try to reach out to others because we were just alone, isolated, and it became a community of people, of fellow musicians and artists and dancers who reached out and I was able to feel like we were out protesting what was going on in the world, of course, without leaving my home. And it reached further. I think a lot of arts organizations started to see this and even Lincoln Center soon thereafter started to acknowledge these things and the rest took off beyond that. So awareness sometimes takes tragic events to bring to the forefront these issues that we've been dealing with for so long and haven't really tried to find a way forward from them. I can't believe that was already all these years ago now because it's still so present in my mind, but it was something that was really an important moment for me to express myself as a musician, but also as a person. Wow. If there's anybody who hasn't seen the original video yet, you should go to YouTube and find it. It was you playing America the Beautiful, but with a switch to the minor key. Yeah. I realized that after I wrote the words I wrote, which you can find online on YouTube or wherever that video is still circulating, I knew that I needed to play my clarinet. It's how I express myself in the world, how I have since I was nine years old. 
And that just kind of came along. My wife suggested that piece somehow. And I knew right away when she said that, I was like, that's exactly what I need to play. Because there is this double-edged sword. You love your country that's given you so many opportunities and all of these things. And yet, you know that the same system of government and the same country has taken rights away from people and has taken lives away from people. And America the Beautiful is the perfect symbol of that for me. It's a song that we all know and love from the time we're children. And yet, when I went into the minor key and I was practicing it and I hit the wrong note and it worked, I realized that that's what I wanted to say, was that because I love this country and in its major, its glorious opportunity that it provides so many different people and freedoms, that at the end of that, it also has all of this injustice built into the system and this minor key built into this piece that we call America. And then I took two knees at the end of that. And the two knee taking is a reference to someone like Colin Kaepernick, who tried to take one knee in a mm-hmm. football game and, and sacrifice his entire career to protest silently. And so I said, let's try this again. And it obviously represents many different things. I put my hands behind my back. I didn't plan any of this, but it wow. just happened at the moment as I was creating this. And that's how that came to be. And well, it's amazing some of the things that have grown out of this. You mentioned Kaepernick, and I'm a big soccer fan, and I watch the games in England, and before every match, players all take a knee as a statement against racism. A surprising outgrowth, perhaps, of the George Floyd killing is that, and people who followed it up like you with their own campaigns resulted in American classical music institutions, particularly orchestras, re-examining their programming and realizing the dearth of composers of color, for example, that were represented. Yeah, exactly. Well, as far as your bio goes, I should mention that your family history and early musical education here in Chicago are well covered on Classical Chicago podcast episode 27, which was for your album Wing Creatures with your brother Damari McGill on flute and the Chicago Youth Symphony Orchestra that you both came out of. That podcast is dated May 2nd, 2019. So if you want to hear about that part of Anthony's history, you can check that out. That's all in the first five minutes of that. Before we started recording, you mentioned something I didn't know about, how much of an influence Richard Stoltzman was on you. Can you just say a few words about that? I didn't really know that much about the clarinet when I started playing it. And obviously at the time... Richard Stoltzman was one of the most famous clarinet players in the world, and I didn't have access to that many recordings, but early on in the days of compact discs, he was one of my earliest recordings of him playing the Copeland Clarinet Concerto and some other pieces, and even a lot of his chamber music repertoire that he played with Richard Good. I would go to bed just listening to Richard Stoltzman. There was something about how he played the clarinet that I could hear the expression in his voice through the instrument. And it was very clear to me as a kid what kind of expression was coming out of his instrument. So he was one of my earliest influences. I used to listen to his recordings on repeat for for many years. Well, is there anything else we should add to your bio? I know you had a very busy summer. Any of the recent highlights you'd like to mention? Oh, well, I guess last summer, I finally made my debut with the Chicago Symphony as a soloist playing Copeland Clarinet Concerto with Marin Alsop. Lovely. We should turn to the album at hand now, American Stories, and it's a really fascinating program. 
Three of the four works are world premiere recordings. All the works were written in the last five years, and I believe these are all composers with whom you have a personal connection. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Great. We'll dive into each of those as we go. And before I get too far, I should note who made this album possible. We are very grateful to our funders for American Stories, which include an anonymous donor, the Robert and Isabel Bass Foundation, Sybil Shamewald, the Alice M. Ditson Fund of Columbia University, and guests at the Soiree CD 2021 annual benefit for nonprofit CD Records, at which, fresh off the recording sessions, you, Anthony, and your colleagues played portions of this program, and people were all too glad to support it by contributing at that soiree. So lots of support, and we are grateful for all of it. The album booklet actually begins with personal notes from both you and the Pacifica Quartet. I'll read the Pacifica Quartets. It's pretty short. And then I was going to ask you to read basically the first paragraph and next sentence of yours, if you wouldn't mind. I'll go first. The Pacifica Quartet writes, Like our nation itself, our backgrounds and identities are rich and varied, diverse and profound. Each new musical creation contributes a fresh voice and a unique viewpoint to our story, while ineluctably dealing with the past and shining a light toward the future. We hope that you enjoy this album and find inspiration as we do in the bountiful sonic tapestries that continue to be woven by American Stories. Through music, we connect with our stories. Music opens a pathway for us to empathize with each other and be present in our shared humanity. Through music, we communicate our different identities and when they are presented together, embrace the beauty that lies in the diversity of sound and story. Music gives us space to be present to ideas and truths for which we don't yet have words, places we've never been and people we've never met. Oh, that's really lovely. Your note goes on a little further. Is there anything else you'd want to emphasize about the album before we get into the individual works? Yeah, all of these composers together and with their individual stories and backgrounds and connections and the way the music fits together it demonstrates that connection and community and that sense of learning from one another and listening to one another and how beautiful that collection of sounds can be in a project and so i'm really happy for people to hear these composers on this album one other thing i would stress about it is the plethora of visual references throughout the program and in fact the album cover itself reflects this a piece by ben shirley that we'll talk about later is titled high sierra sonata and the album cover is just a gorgeous shot of the High Sierras at night with a starry sky. So you'll definitely want to check that out. You can see on our website, of course, sadierecords.org, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. You can check out the album cover there. Let's get into the program itself. And there are four works, four composers, Richard Daniel Poor, James Lee III, Ben Shirley, and Valerie Coleman. And the first work presented is by Richard Daniel Poor, and it's a piece written in 2020, actually, for you, in the Catalyst Quartet, titled Four Angels. And that is a reference to the four little girls who were murdered in the 1963 Birmingham church bombing. There was a live-streamed performance of this in 2021, but like other works on this program, that was not the intended premiere. Can you talk about the circumstances? Obviously, this had to do with COVID and how the first performance ended up coming about the way it did. Sure. During the pandemic, so much of the music went online and so many of my performances happened right in front of the computer, frankly. But this was one of those 
opportunities where Daniel Poore had written this piece and I was asked by the Metropolitan Museum of Art here in New York to curate a performance in one of the galleries. When I heard about this, I was like, I really would love to be able to play this piece. It's such a moving work. And I was able to go into the galleries and pick a spot that resonated with me. The Four Angels became such an important piece to perform in that moment during the pandemic still when there weren't audiences that we could perform for and especially here in New York when everything was just shut down. I'd done work previously with the Catalyst Quartet and to be able to play that was a real special event that can still be seen online somewhere. People should definitely check that out as well. It was a very beautiful and moving performance. I should note that all the program notes in the album booklet are by the composers themselves, and Daniel Poor writes about his piece that he wrote it to bring a deeper awareness in America of why black lives do indeed matter. I guess uh, that's similar motivation to your Take to Knees campaign, now that I think about it. And he says that these four little girls who were martyred serve as a symbol for hope and innocence that many years ago in America was suffocated, and that this piece was written as a memorial to their memory, but the music also stands as a small testament to the choice for a better path, one consisting of compassion and understanding that we must have for one another. How does this, for you, Anthony, come through in the music? Yeah, the music is one of those pieces that has those moments of absolute beauty, has this thread of terrible pain throughout it. But I feel like, just like the memory of these girls lives on and that those that fight for justice in the world don't forget those tragic events, those terrible things that happen. They continue to fight forward, to move forward. And so there is hope in this music and there is love in this music. And in those memories, I think there's power. There's beauty in that sadness and the remembrance of those young girls. And throughout the piece with Daniel Poor's absolute skill at writing hauntingly sweet lyrical melodies for the clarinet and the strings gives life. At the same time, in some of the work, there are moments where you can hear the pain come through. You can hear these screams almost mm -hmm. within the work. It hits pretty hard, but it's a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous dedication to those four angels, as he calls it. How did Richard Daniel Poor come to write Four Angels for you? Well, Richard and I, have, we've been friends for many years. And during the pandemic, we were talking about so many different things and going through so much that I'm just lucky because people like Richard give me these gifts. This is just another one of those. As I mentioned, he wrote a clarinet concerto for me, which I'm forever grateful. And this, in some form, eventually could be paired with that concerto as well. But like I said, it's the generosity of people like Richard that do these things. The piece is about 14 minutes long, and the first nine minutes are very dynamic in terms of those wails of pain that come in all of a sudden at different moments. But then it, for the last almost five minutes, shifts quite a bit into uh, what to me sounds like a processional, really a funereal procession. And in fact, I thought what we might hear is the last two minutes uh, where that slow march 
continues and then we hear these falling figures from you and the strings that to me sound like tears or sobs. Uh, what's your take on the ending of the piece and its meaning? Yeah, I think that's a beautiful description. Time keeps traveling, time keeps moving. I think the struggle for justice continues. And so this pulsating rhythmic and lyrical thing that takes us into the finish of the piece is really saying that. It's like, we shall overcome, we keep moving, going forward. Daniel Poor is amazing the way he allows his music to travel through time to give you a place and a time and a journey during a work. He wrote a clarinet concerto for me years ago, and he similarly allows you to journey through this life in the work. And as you put it, the funeral procession at the end, energy, is it hopeful? Is it sad? Is it both? And that's for the listener to decide as they hear the piece and they journey through this music. Oh, that's lovely. Since you mentioned We Shall Overcome, just a quick aside here. I was thinking about Will Liverman's debut album for Sadie, which was all black composers under the title Dreams of a New Day. And there's a commission piece on there by Shauna Pebolo, a Chicago composer, called Ballad of Birmingham, that treats this same subject. And in fact, he weaves We Shall Overcome into the accompaniment. Interesting wow. that you mentioned that in conjunction with this as well. But let's hear what we've just been talking about. We'll hear the last about two minutes of the piece of this processional uh, with the falling figures over it. So here is the ending of Richard Daniel Poor's Four Angels as performed on American Stories, new album from Sadie, by Anthony McGill and the Pacifica Quartet. You just heard the last couple of minutes of a piece called Four Angels, based on the four girls who were murdered in the Birmingham church bombing of 
1963, a piece by Grammy Award-winning composer Richard Daniel Poor. It's the first work on a new album on CD Records titled American Stories, as performed by Anthony McGill and the Pacifica Quartet. And Anthony McGill is my guest on this Classical Chicago podcast. The next work on this album of four contemporary American works is by James Lee III. He's the youngest composer on the album, born in 1975. We talked about your connection with Richard Daniel Poor and how he came to write Four Angels for You. What personal connections come into play with James Lee III, and what should people know about him? Yeah, James Lee III and I have known each other for quite a while. I first was introduced to him when I was a professor at the Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore, Maryland. He is a professor at Morgan State University. And so he heard I was in the area. He'd got his doctorate from Michigan. So we developed an online friendship. He emailed me kind of out of the blue and said, hey, I'm James, listen to my music. And I discovered it and I loved it. And so we've been in touch ever since. It's a nice connection because he's a black musician, a black composer. And we said, you know, maybe one day we'll do something together. And years later, I discovered another one of his pieces that I loved. And I started playing that. And then it just grew from there. I asked him to do a couple other things. He actually composed another piece for my brother and me and a couple other players called Four Principal Brothers, a solo clarinet piece. And I realized that he's one of the most prolific composers ever. And I commissioned another piece and he wrote it in like a month. And it's a beautiful trio. This is the kind of friendship we've developed. And then when you meet him, you realize he's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. He travels around to hear his pieces performed, and he's just an all-around good guy who happens to now be getting his pieces played all over the world. And I'm so happy for him. He just wrote another piece for the music advancement program that I'm artistic director of for a wind ensemble, also finished, scored in a short amount of time. I'm so lucky that I get to play his music now all the time. So it's wonderful for people that don't know him to discover him. Well, the piece on this album, his quintet for clarinet and string quartet, actually, and just noticed it's the only piece that doesn't have a descriptive title, though the movements certainly do. He wrote this in 2018, but it was not premiered until March of 2021. What were the circumstances here? This premiere just happened because the Pacificas and I were given the opportunity to start playing again during the pandemic, and we decided to play this. He'd written the piece before for a different group of players, and somehow that had never had its real premiere. So when we found that out, we were like, let's program this. Let's get it out there. Let's make this happen because it's a great piece, deserves to be heard. And so we just did it. One thing we learned during the pandemic and when concerts were not happening and audiences weren't there is that we need to do these things. We have to choose to perform these things. And when we got opportunities, those are your chances to be able to champion music, to champion new composers, and to really program all of those people that some of them whom are your friends and others who you don't know, and really just to get out there and share music with people. So that's how that concert came about. Just one of a few concerts we did with Pacificas in 2021 that we got to actually have this premiered. Oh, wonderful. As I mentioned earlier, all the program notes in this booklet are by the composers. So I'll give the names of the four movements first and then read from James's program note. So the movements are titled Forgotten Emblems, Awashoa, 
which we heard at the top of the podcast, Alas, My Identity, and Celebrated Emblems, Lee writes that the piece was inspired by historical aspects of indigenous Americans and also quotes some of his African-American composer predecessors, such as Nathaniel Dett and William Dawson, the latter's famous Negro folk symphony. There's also references to a late 18th century series of paintings under the title An Emblem of America, hence the titles of the first and last movements. There's also moments, he says, where he tries to imitate an Indian powwow. The second moment, Awashoa, actually is a Choctaw word that means play somewhere, and of course, being playful, that is the scherzo movement. The third moment, Alas, My Identity, is a lament, referencing the reclassification and removal of many indigenous peoples from their regions. And then the finale is a short dance celebration of the lives celebrated in the paintings represented in the series An Emblem of America. Anthony, how are these influences heard in the music? And I want to mention especially that I remember at the sessions you coaching the quartet on how to emphasize certain beats to get that particular indigenous feel that James Lee wanted. Can you talk about that? Yes. One of the few experiences I've had with being in an indigenous community was outside of Santa Fe for one of their feast celebrations. It was mind-blowing to hear and to see what one of these particular feast celebrations required of the people participating in it. Not only is it so sacred that you must be invited into someone's home in order to be on the land during this particular time, but the whole community, maybe a hundred or so people as well, from the older generation, younger generation, kids, and, and in between, have this rhythmic dance that they use to celebrate, that they prepare the costumes for months and months, and they're doing this dance, but it's much more than a dance. It feels and it sounds, and the presence of it, you feel it's like the heartbeat of the earth. That's how I describe it Mm. when I experienced it. And you go out of the home after eating this wonderful meal that's there all day and probably for many days, and you go into the square and you have all of these generations of people in the community rhythmically doing these things with these beautiful, elaborate costumes. It just feels like such a connection to the ancient ways, I guess you could describe it. And this rhythm and what that feels like is something that I think James is trying to tap into in his way in this piece. And it's very familiar because in a lot of our communities and thinking about his trying to connect the similarities of different communities and cultures. There's so many more similarities than there are differences. And so what he's trying to do in this piece is he's connecting through music what that means as far as your identity and your cultures. And the meeting of those is what he's accomplishing, I believe, in this work, is trying to bring those together, which we all try to do. But that connection to the ancient ways, that sense of music coming from the earth, music is of this this place, and we're all from this beautiful place we call the world, or earth, or mother earth, or whatever you have it. The way music can have these accents that can have these expressive ways of singing, expressive ways of being in the music. You mentioned the Nathaniel Dett and these different chords. So James is not only communicating with ancient cultures that 
he's aware of, but also cultures of his forefathers in the composition world in America. So it's this idea of bringing the traditions of the old into the new and connecting with those ancient voices and bringing them back into the present and then sending them off into the future. And I think that's what he tries to do in this piece is connect with respect these different cultures. And what do you think Lee's inspiration was for that, and specifically for choosing as his subjects Native American culture and this late 18th century painting series, An Emblem of America? Well, the way he discusses it, and we've talked about it, is that the histories of Indigenous Americans and the histories of African Americans are intertwined in a lot of very complex and difficult ways. The similarities there are what he's talking about. So not only are there blending of the cultures, because a lot of African-Americans have connections and bloodlines that connect to Native Americans, to indigenous populations in America. Including, I would just mention, William Grant Still is one of those, right? I think so. And so a lot of us, especially in American cities where we tended to arrive as immigrants, if you will. I remember growing up in Chicago and everyone had a grandmother or a great-grandmother who might have had some Indian blood, they used to call it, had Native American ancestry. But that was a point of pride to a lot of Black Americans, that even though we were shipped here from across the oceans, that when we arrived, that some of us did have positive connections with the community of people that lived on this land before us and before the Europeans. And so that was a point of pride for so many people in the Black community. And in this picture that James is talking about, he describes that sometimes you can't tell because of darker complexions who is an Indigenous person mm -hmm. and who is a Black person and who is an African-American person. And it's also like the way we have all struggled and grown and learned about how we call ourselves, who we call ourselves. And at different times that has shifted, that has changed. And that juxtaposition between who we see ourselves as and who we are, what our names are, and what the culture has named us and identified us as. That's really complex mm -hmm. and complicated but it's a part of the American story. It's a part of the American experience, being re-identified as Negro, as Black, as colored, as African-American, and the search for identity as a community, but also in the world. So what do you call me? What do I call myself? And how those are often at odds with one another. This is the American story and it exists in music as well, the genre of music. Like, what does that mean? So different styles and canons of music. This album, of course, does that in a greater sense, but within the particular piece, in this piece, for instance, there is this exploration of what it means to be African-American. What does it mean to be an indigenous American? What does it mean to be Native American? All of these categories. So and in music, does that blend and does that come away with a sense of something more beautiful? 
So I think it's time for people to hear some of that. At the top of the podcast, we heard the beginning of the second movement, Awashoa. I thought we could turn to the conclusion of the piece from the movement titled Celebrated Emblems, where the driving rhythms that characterize the scherzo come back. And we also get some very virtuosic flourishes at the end. Anything more you'd want to say about this part before we play it? No, I think the music will speak for itself. The rhythms come out very clearly. The excitement, the energy, and the vitality of this work comes through. Great. Well, let's hear. So this is the last couple minutes of James Lee III's Quintet for Clarinet and String Quartet from the movement titled Celebrated Emblems, performed once again by Anthony McGill on clarinet and the Pacifica Quartet. just heard the ending of James Lee III's Quintet for Clarinet and String Quartet. The movement that we heard from is titled Celebrated Emblems, and it was performed by Anthony McGill, clarinet, and the Pacifica Quartet. And if you like what you've been hearing so far on this podcast, and I sure hope you do, the album will release on November 11, 2022. The album is titled American Stories, and you can, of course, find it on the Sadie Records website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org, where it will be available for pre-order even before the release date. Of course, Amazon is another place you can always pre-order. And when it hits that November 11th date, it will be available on streaming sites such as Spotify and Apple Music, if that's how you prefer to get your music, whatever way you like. We hope you'll check out this wonderful and intriguing and very contemporary album. So the next composer on this album, Ben Shirley, has a truly fascinating history. 
He started off actually as a rock musician, as a bassist, for 25 plus years as a touring musician, many uh, singles that charted in the top five, but uh, drug and alcohol addiction drove him actually into homelessness. In 2011, he sought refuge at the Midnight Mission in Los Angeles's Skid Row and rebuilt his musical life from there. And in fact, in 2015, he was accepted into the San Francisco Conservatory of Music and has emerged as one of today's leading classical composers. He proudly announces that he has been sober for over 10 years. In addition to music, he's also used running as a way to get away from his previous addictions. And he's a frequent speaker on the subject of recovery from addiction and homelessness and the role that music and running and and his faith uh, have played in that recovery. Anthony, how did you get to know Ben Shirley? I met Ben a few years ago in L.A. when I was doing a residency and a series of concerts with the L.A. Chamber Orchestra. And I was living there, and one of the pieces we did and one of the performances we did was at the Midnight Mission. And an organization that was affiliated with that location is the Street Symphony that was founded by Vijay Gupta. And it's a great organization that finds people that have a love of music and allows them to play with one another and and create with one another. And it's a really great thing. I went down and got to premiere a work by Ben Shirley. I'd never met him before. And we were rehearsing this trio called Brother Burn. And this piece was devastatingly painful and passionate. I worked with him, and then I heard some of his other works, his work for String Quartet, and then I heard his story, and then we went down to the Midnight Mission, and he told his story again to the people there, and we played for them. And I was so moved by him, and I heard some of his work for strings. It's like, I would love to work with you again, and, and he was like, I would love to do the same, man. He's so kind and so humble, and you know he's been through everything you could possibly go through as a human being. And to see the light shine through him of hope and possibility when he was just really down and out through his music, he found a way. And then we got this commission from the Denver Friends of Chamber Music to do this piece and then the pandemic hits. And so we're still waiting to do it. (laughs) We're still waiting to do it. But basically, this is going to be a world premiere recording of it. It's such an honor to be able to present his music to the world. What a gift, what a talent, and what a person, and what a personal story he has. It's inspiring. As you mentioned, there was actually a commission by a consortium of three organizations, and the league commissioner was the Denver Friends of Chamber Music, and was originally scheduled to be performed there in September of 2020, and obviously that didn't happen. And happily, it's been rescheduled for April of next year, 2023. As mentioned, in addition to music, running and other aerobic activities have made up part of Shirley's recovery, and one of these was participating in the Bishop High Sierra Ultra Marathon, and that was the inspiration for this piece, as he explains in his program note, the piece written in 2020, and Ben Shirley writes, Way up in the eastern Sierras, I soon learned that the weather, much like life, can change on a dime. As the mountains wake up, it is clear, cool, and sparkling with life, but within minutes it is sleeting, freezing, howling, and ultimately covered in snow. The sun returns, and the rain returns, and on it went before relative calm set in at the end of our 12-hour shift. 
every season came and went through the course of a single day, which couldn't help but remind me of the seasons of life and in some cases the seasons of emotions we all go through in a day, a week, a month, or a year. And this is tracked in the three movements of the piece. The first movement is titled Buttermilk Morning and is that sound of the mountains waking up, as he puts it. The second movement, Angry Secrets, is clearly the storm going through. And then the return of the calm we can hear in the third movement, which is titled Reflections on a Day, and those type of reflections that he mentions in his note, of course. Anthony, can you talk about how this visual imagery helps inform your and the quartet's interpretation of the piece? When you're learning a new piece you've never heard before, a lot of the imagery, it just comes from the sound. I wouldn't have to hear the program note, for instance. I don't think I actually ever even heard the program note before just now. Huh. Because composers write in the music everything that they're feeling and they're seeing and they're thinking. And what you do is just interpret that through sound. Hearing what you say, what's great about that is that it's all of those words, all of those sights, all of those things are in the music. So besides like the title of the piece, et cetera, and the feeling that you get from the composer, a lot of the amazing part of, of working with the composer and hearing their music and seeing their score is that it's all in there. The shimmery colors and the beauty of the space of the sound of the clarinet. For instance, the clarinet has these solo moments it feels natural. It feels like you're out in the mountains alone. And then we're transported because some of the music sounds like a music you would hear in the mountains, or if you would hear fiddling, or if you would hear things like that musically. So that's a little bit how I approach new pieces. Also from the sound of the music itself, where is that taking you? It matches up with his idea of where he is and what his inspirations for the piece were. The piece has so many different characters, dance-like characters, also natural sounds, if you will. But it's the way he uses the instruments together and the rhythm of the piece is the rhythm of nature, the rhythm of life. Well, let's hear an example of that. I thought we could hear the first couple minutes of the third movement, the reflections on a day. And this uh, comes after the storm has just passed and the second moment and it opens with the piece's recurring four note motif which you state in the clarinet while the strings provide some misty harmonics what would you want to say about this section it's just really beautiful there are so many of those lyrical misty moments in this he's speaking through the clarinet and he has these melodies and this of course this repeated thing comes back he's speaking through the instrument i think the language comes through beautifully. Is there anything special you want to say about that recurring motive, those four notes that come back so often in the piece? There's a lot of contemplation in that, in the sorrow of the clarinet sound, these repeated notes in the clarinet. And he really captures this feeling of thought, the kind of reflection that one gets, I suppose, when you are in nature and you can sit silently with it and those kind of experiences that we've all had that's how i think about that through the clarinet perhaps concentrated by the high altitude in this case yeah so let's hear that then here's the first couple of minutes of the third moment of ben shirley's high sierra sonata entitled reflections on a day performed by anthony mcgill and the pacifica quartet 
We just heard the first two minutes or so of a movement titled Reflections on a Day. It's from a piece titled High Sierra Sonata by composer Ben Shirley, piece written in 2020. This is the world premiere recording of that piece on an album titled American Stories, November 2022 release on CD Records, featuring clarinetist Anthony McGill, my guest on this Classical Chicago podcast and the Pacifica Quartet. Before we get to the last piece, this is where I usually like to ask about your experience of the recording sessions for the album. And maybe you could talk a little bit about how that kind of work, the recording session work, differs from performing these pieces in a live setting. Yeah, it's always such an amazing experience to get to record pieces. In a session, you're getting to dive in pretty deeply into the work. Whereas in a performance, you're putting it out there and of course, different things happen at the moment. But in the recording, what's actually special about it is that in a way you're learning it on a micro level, you're getting to dive in sometimes just into individual measures or especially individual movements. You get to explore them a little bit deeper in a recording session. So I always say the best way that you can really learn a piece, even if you've performed it before or after, or whenever the premiere of the work is, whatever work it is, is that when you get to that recording session, you're really going to learn the piece. You're really going to experience it on that level. You're going to dive in deeply with the particulars of the work. And it opens your mind to what you might do in that next performance. And playing all these pieces, which are so different, was really a lot of fun. The word isn't easy, but it had a really good flow to it. I'm always reminded of one of my early experiences as a producer on a recording with the Vermeer Quartet playing a piece that they had been playing for decades. And we got to a point in the first movement where it actually broke into a 10 minute discussion of who had the theme at a certain moment. They just played through it in performance, but now that it was time to record the piece, they actually had to work that out. Any thoughts on the sound of the album, which was recorded at the Riva and David Logan Center for the Arts Performance Hall in the Logan Center at the University of Chicago? And the sound, of course, provided by Sadie Records' wonderful Grammy-winning engineer, Bill Malon. Yeah, the sound in the album is great. Bill always does a fantastic job, and you too as well, Jim. Oh, thank you. Honestly, the quartet, me, whoever it is, what happens especially in recordings, is that the quality comes across due to the skill of you folks that are doing that kind of work, honestly. And I think it's present. I think it's gorgeous. And I think you can really hear the tone of each work, the different quality of sound for each piece. In each piece, you can hear the musician step into a different space, even though we did it all in one space for this particular album. So I think it's special. Interesting point. So the final work on the album is the only non-world premiere. It's a second recording. It's uh, Valerie Coleman's Shotgun Houses. She says it's going to be the first of three installments to celebrate the life of Muhammad Ali. I guess I should ask, since it's not a world premiere, why you chose to include it besides that it's a magnificent piece. When we were discussing what pieces to do in this album, I think it just fit into this concept of this particular album in that not only is it such a powerful piece of music and beautiful and exciting and fun to play, but it's a story in and of itself. Create the picture, it creates a place. 
she captures all of those things that we're talking about with the different types of American stories. In this work, there's Valerie's story. There's some of Valerie's, Valerie Coleman's personal history, how she grew up in West Louisville and her family knew Muhammad Ali's family. So there's that personal connection there. There's the American story of her life, truly American story of Muhammad Ali and everything he went through and what he stands for and his journey through America at the time that he journeyed through it. And the work itself has specific stories and specific images of particular fights even and places and people. It was just a wonderful addition to this. This is the American story on so many different levels. Excellent. And as far as Valerie Coleman's story goes, she is quite the sought-after composer these days. The Washington Post listed her among the top 35 women composers around, and she was Performance Today's 2020 Classical Woman of the Year. Her Portraits of Langston, based on Langston Hughes' poems, is included on your 2017 album, your second album for CD, with your brother, Damare, and pianist Michael McHale as part of your McGill-McHale trio. In addition to having, obviously, recorded that work of hers, what is your personal relationship with Valerie? I've known Valerie for quite a few years now. Of course, I met her first when she was a member of the Imani Wynn Quintet, and my brother being a flute player and uh, Valerie being a flute player, there was a, just another little connection. But I knew of her work as an absolutely fantastic flutist beforehand. And then as I and we, my brother and I especially, just started to discover her work, and specifically Portraits of Langston, which we recorded, we started to get to know her even better. And now as a composer, I get lucky enough to see her and get to work with her in different environments. Once again, she was also last year, the composer in residence for the music advancement program, where James Lee is gonna be the composer in residence this year for our program. And so she came and worked with our students. And frankly, a lot of being a black musician, you know other black musicians in classical music in America. And that is a community of friendship and love. So to be able to honor her work and participate in it and having this work on this program is especially wonderful for me and for us. What happens is that oftentimes your stories as Black classical musicians overlap. So a lot of the similarities that she may have growing up in Louisville, my brother and I may have had growing up in Chicago as young Black classical musicians. And often those stories are very similar. And so we're not related, but sometimes with other musicians, you might as well be. Valerie, she's one of these composers and one of these musicians that's like a family member and also has a similar mission in life because she grew up and she understands that what music gave to her, what music education gives to the next generation. So she's doing lots of similar work in her life now for the next generation of young composers and young female composers of color. And as I'm trying to do with young musicians, instrumentalists in New York and elsewhere, it's just an honor to know Valerie and to be able to present her this wonderful piece, even though it's been performed beautifully before by the Harlem Quartet, I believe. 
that I just selfishly, we just selfishly wanted to do this piece. I'm so glad we did. Well, there's a lot in that answer. <laughs> and you noted how personal uh, this piece is because Coleman and Ali did in fact grow up in that same West Louisville neighborhood and have all those connections. And this is another piece based on visual imagery, including, as you mentioned, uh, blow by blow of Ali's uh, 1960 Olympic gold medal winning fight. And in fact, let me read a little bit from her program note to describing some of these images. So the first movement, which actually is the same title as the piece, Shotgun Houses, except that the capitalization is a little different to emphasize the gun part, is a sketch of the neighborhoods of West Louisville in, in the 1950s. And it opens with you giving uh, what she describes as a down-home whale which is a nod, she says, to Southern life. And the piece goes on to portray the neighborhood and the people in it. The second movement uh, is titled Grand Avenue. That's uh, where Ali's home actually was. And uh, she calls it a simple ballad to Ali's mother. And then the third movement, Rome 1960, references that fight. And it actually begins with the young Cassius Clay, as he was called then, punching the speed bag. And you hear that particular rhythm. And eventually the bell rings, and, and that's you actually ringing the bell through the bell of your clarinet. And then the fight begins, and at the beginning it doesn't go so well for Ali, but he rallies at the end, and here's what Valerie writes about how she describes the ending. Ali quickly reflects on what needs to be done, and within the menomoso, the slower section of sobering and slow melody, realizes that the very last round should leave no doubt that he is the champion. As the bell rings one final time, a rejuvenated and determined Ali dances in the ring with a recapitulation of the opening material, reminding the listener of humanity's determination as manifested through Ali's greatness. Does any of that actually inform your interpretation? Yeah, in this piece in particular, because the scenes are laid out specifically in the work, in the score, it really does inform the action in the ring because she really does write this is where we are this is what's happening and it makes it into like while you're playing it you can see the scene in your mind as you're playing and you're actively in the ring and in those moments so the descriptions not only those descriptions in this piece because the composer wants them in there it does inform the performance of it and also makes it a ton of fun to play because you're how should I say, you're kind of caught up in the movie of it. Mm -hmm. And I'm an actual character in this movie while you're playing that's based on a real life. So that's what makes it just a lot of fun to play. The music itself, of course, has it. So there's that balance between that's the story, but that's also the sound that's bringing it to life. So while performing this piece, it does feel like sometimes I can see the images in my head that are informing what I'm doing with my body physically, as well as just with the sounds of the notes. Yeah, so you essentially get to play Ali, right? <laughs> yeah, which is great. <laughs> and uh, to me, that last action almost feels like a brief prayer, and then he rallies and, and even feels like there's a bit of showboating going on at the end, as Ali was known to do. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. And in fact, I was going to ask if it was as much fun to play as it sounds, and apparently it is. So let's hear that then. This is the last couple of minutes of Valerie Coleman's Shotgun Houses. This is the movement titled Rome 1960, where we get to hear in music a description of Muhammad Ali's gold medal winning 
fight from that location and time. Once again, we hear Anthony McGill clarinet and the Pacifica Quartet. just heard the conclusion of Valerie Coleman's Shotgun Houses. It's a piece written in 2018 from a new recording by Anthony McGill on clarinet with the Pacifica Quartet. The album is titled American Stories. It is the November 2022 release on Sadie Records and is available on the Sadie website, c-e-d-i-l-l-e-records.org. We're recording this podcast on October 5th. The podcast will be released even before the street date of the album, which is November 11th, and the album will be available for pre-order on Sadie's site as well as on Amazon.com and available wherever you like to purchase your CDs or if you prefer to stream music. Once we hit that street date on November 11th, it'll be available on all your favorite streaming sites, including Spotify and Apple Music and all the rest. So however you like to get your music, I hope you'll want to check out this full album. And in fact, Anthony, now that we've heard excerpts from all the pieces, uh, what would you like listeners to take from hearing the album as a whole? And I would note in particular the diversity of the composers represented here. I would love the listeners to experience the beauty of all of the gifts of every composer on this album. And also to ponder what we've been talking about today, which is that diversity is excellence. Diversity is beauty and power. And this album is just a small sample size of what that means. Everyone's story here is so important. And when you attempt to listen to one another, to hear one another, all these composers are very different. Some may know each other, I'm not sure if they do, 
but we have on this album so many different people and yet so many powerful amazing artistic voices that do deserve to be heard uh, like so many different creators deserve to be heard and it's our job to try to present them so that we can experience them enjoy them and appreciate their music somehow without uh, acknowledging their identities i feel like the music speaks for itself but also it only embellishes how wonderful it is that they all are so different and have these amazing gifts so i would i would love people to explore that while listening to the works of pieces in different orders in different places in different moments and seeing what the connections are with their voices as american composers their differences and how you can experience the sound world of this album in this way that makes you think a little bit more about how beautiful our differences can be. Well, as you were talking, it made me realize just how appropriate this album title of American Stories is because each composer has a uniquely American story and each piece tells a uniquely American story. And we start with a very tragic one at the beginning and end with such a celebratory one at the end. It really is quite a journey. So thank you for putting this wonderful program together. Speaking of putting programs together, how is concert life? Is it back to normal or if not, how close are we? Concert life is back to normal, I guess isn't the word. It's back to being quite active, I believe. Audience numbers up and down and up and down. But what's amazing is that there's so many concerts happening right now that we're just lucky to be doing all of that. So I'm just grateful to be able to be performing for audiences, real live audiences. I'm excited and hopeful for the future. And this new way of presenters presenting new music and presenting old music together and in a way that is thoughtful is really exciting. And how much have you been playing the repertoire from this album in concert uh, recently? And are there upcoming performances people might be able to enjoy to hear these pieces live, besides, of course, the delayed Denver premiere of the High Sierra Sonata coming up in April of 23. Yeah, I've been performing a lot of the pieces on the album. Anytime I've performed with the Pacifica Quartet, frankly, <laughs> <laughs> um, which has been a, quite a few times over the last year or so and into the future. And I think we have upcoming performances of some of the repertoire, if not all different composers from the album in LA coming up this season, in Syracuse uh, this season, perhaps different places all over the country, wherever you may see Anthony McGill and the Pacifica Quartet might hear some of this. I think in New York, actually, as well, this season, we'll be performing one or some of the works from the album. So that'll be exciting. So whenever we get a chance to, we'll be able to hear a lot of this rep. I'm so glad. So what else is coming up for you in terms of major concerts, new projects, etc.? This year is exciting. I'm playing, it's not premiering because it's premiered long before me, but I've started to perform a lot of the Anthony Davis piece called You Have the Right to Remain Silent. Mm. And it's a piece for clarinet and contra-alto clarinet and orchestra. And I'll be doing that with the Detroit Symphony and I'll be doing that with the Boston Symphony. 
making my debut with Boston Symphony. And an exciting part of the season this year at the New York Philharmonic, while we open up the new hall this year, one of the concertos will be me doing the American premiere of the Esapekka Salonen clarinet work for clarinet and strings. That'll be wonderful. There's probably more, but I'm looking forward to the year. Excellent. Well, we always end these podcasts with a question about what makes Chicago so special as a musical city. And you answered that as a general question on our podcast of May 2019 for your Wing Creatures album. And you also answered about how Chicago has evolved and needs to continue to evolve in our podcast of October 2021 for your album of music of Brahms, Weber, and Jesse Montgomery, along with pianist Gloria Chen, that album titled Here With You. So this time, I'd like to follow up on that answer by asking how Chicago compares with other cities that you've experienced in representing all its citizens in its classical music community, something I think every city struggles with. This came to mind because I recently heard a report on NPR that was, frankly, almost all negative about this issue, talking about the dearth of black musicians and orchestras nationwide. And I was disappointed that they failed to mention what I would argue are some success stories right here in Chicago, such as the Chicago Sinfonietta and Project Inclusion, which is a joint project of the Sinfonietta and the Grant Park Orchestra. What is your take on this And are we, I put that in quotes, doing better with composers and conductors of color than we are perhaps with individual orchestral players? Yeah, it's hard to say because the data is very difficult to parse through. But I would say looking at some of the things you just mentioned, the Chicago Sinfonietta being really one of the beacon orchestras for what an orchestra like that can look like and sound like and become and represent and the community of musicians in Chicago that are open to create change and to create a community of musicians. On the positive spin of that, Chicago is the place that the Merritt School of Music started, which was to give music education to inner city kids like myself and was tuition free to do so at the time. And that's just grown. And Chicago Pathways is still doing work in the city in that regard, and I'm sure so many other organizations. And you do need to look at the positives. You do need to look at, okay, the positive change and the positive growth, because people are in the communities trying to do this work and should be acknowledged as well in the media and in the news much more. Chicago is a good example of that positive direction that's happening. I can't really compare, honestly, to other cities. So I won't really go there, but I will say that we have to continue to push forward. And I would say that, yeah, if progress is slow in orchestras with individual musicians, that only makes it more urgent that we continue to do work that we can do, which is the work that Sadi is trying to do as an, an organization internally, but also externally to say, okay, this is where we're putting our music where our mouth is. We want to support young or old musicians of color, women, all of these things, different gender identities, to make it a part of the culture to actually do the things that everyone's talking about within the organization. That's the kind of positive change that we have to double down on. Okay, what is not possible? We focus on that. Okay, orchestras aren't doing the job fast enough. Okay, so what can we do? 
It's organizations on the individual level, like I said, that Sidi, for instance, is trying to do that work, saying, look at our rosters, look at who we're giving different opportunities to. Do we have opportunities for young musicians and young composers and diverse composers to present on our platform? So I think it's about people. And what I was trying to do a little bit with Take Two Knees is say, what is your individual power? We all have our own individual skills and power. And we often look at other places and say, well, they're not doing anything, but what can we all do? And sometimes it's just looking internally at what organizations we're affiliated with. And I think that's happening, that we just need to encourage that to continue to happen and to record it and acknowledge it when it is successful. And know that also with bias, it's so difficult, is that mistakes are going to happen, but you have to be willing to make mistakes in order to make progress. And I think that organizations keep doing that and not forgetting about what happened in 2020, but also not forgetting about what's happened and learning about what's happened in our entire history as Americans and in the world, but especially as Americans. I think together, that's where we go forward. Uh, That's lovely. And I should note that as a member of Sadie Records Board of Directors, Anthony uh, serves on our task force specifically for issues of identity, diversity, equity, and access as we look and constantly relook at our programming to try to make sure that we're serving all the communities we should be serving. So, Anthony, thank you so much. This has been absolutely enlightening. I sure hope people want to check out the album after hearing not only the music, but you talk about the significance of each piece and composer. So thank you again for joining us. This has been another Classical Chicago podcast from Sadie Records.